Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and together we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about identity design. I'll be joined by Remy Green, a founding partner at Cohen and Green, where they litigate civil rights and First Amendment cases. And later on, we'll chat with Corey Alonzo Yoder, a visiting faculty member at Howard Law School. Together, we will learn about the role that names play in designing an identity. Before we dive in, just a reminder to our listeners, please jump on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave a review, a rating. It really helps people find the show, helps us get more people into this conversation about how design can be transformative. So give that episode a quick pause, add your review, and then hit play again. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the show. And with that, onto this week's topic, our summer intern Tanya studies computer science. In one of her lectures, the professor was going over rules programmers must keep in mind when they're asking for names in websites and applications. For example, some people don't have a first name, some people don't have a last name, and there's no such thing as a legal name. This struck Tanya as odd. How could there be no such thing as a legal name when every official form asks for one? And if legal names are a myth, why do we keep asking for them on everything? After doing some research on her own, Tanya discovered the article, There is No Such Thing as a Legal Name, A Strange Shared Delusion, by Austin A. Baker and J. Remy Green. I'm joined by one of the co-authors of this article to learn more. Remy Green is a partner with Cohen and Green, specializing in civil rights, defamation, free speech, consumer rights, and intellectual property litigation. They are also a regular speaker on issues of non-binary, transgender, and intersex inclusion in the Workplace and Legal Academy. Remy is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School and has published pieces on intellectual property, First Amendment issues, queer rights, and politics, just to name a few. Remy is also a lecturer at Boston University School of Law and various schools in the City University of New York system, where they teach courses that cover law and technology issues, as well as civil and constitutional rights. Remy gravitates towards cases that challenge traditional legal theories and change our view of the world. Remy, welcome to the show. It's so nice to be here, Sam. I'm, I'm a sometime fan. I love it. I love it. I mentioned the article that you co-wrote with Austin Baker. Can you tell me when you discovered this sort of shared delusion that, you know, that there's no such thing as a legal name? Sure. Well, I actually discovered it in law school. It was an offhand comment by my secured transactions professor when we were talking about the need to have a correct name in the system recording who had the right to various property against which there was a lien, he mentioned offhand that people don't really have a legal name and just kind of moved on. And it stuck with me and and kind of graded in in a certain way every time I I heard it demanded. And and eventually it graded hard enough and and graded against my own identity hard enough that I, I felt the need to write a paper. In law, I think that we we have trouble saying this is the way the world should be, and <laughs> and so you know by leveraging some some philosophy, I think we were able to both make a normative and a descriptive argument. What role does a name play in our identity, based on your research and your work on this? As a lawyer, I'm compelled to begin with it depends. In terms of where it fits into a legal system, right? That, that's what philosophy calls a referent. Names serve an important role in that they point to people. 
Um, and they have to do that in the legal system because we need a way to identify people. But they serve more than that role, especially socially. And I, and I think that that's something that's actually very often lost in the legal system, that people's names have these important qualifiers, whether it's the story that your family has. I'm not even sure this is true, but my family certainly has a story about Harold Grunhaus having his name changed to Green at, at Ellis Island. And many families have stories like that. Or, you know, there, there are obviously families that changed their family name when they came out of slavery. So names are not just a way of referring to people, but they, they also do have this important social, political, moral content or religious content or, or any number of other things that I think kind of gets overlooked. So the legal system then has to get to a place where, okay, well, how do we decide which name is the right one? And right used very loosely there. And it turns out that because different areas of law develop separately, like we don't have a law of the name, we end up with different answers in different places. So for example, in, in the system of secured transactions, where the goal is basically you just need to figure out who has rights against a certain person. The goal is use the name that you're going to find them in the system with. So very quickly in that area, um, it, it's kind of become settled that using the phrase legal name is not useful because legal name could refer to any number of different things or nothing at all. And instead, they en they've ended up going very specific and they just say driver's license name or passport name. Because sometimes those two names don't even match. The goal of that system is if a creditor is trying to find out whether somebody has a lien against Sam's cows and they type Sam's name into the recording system, they need to get back the right information. And so by saying, just look at the, the like, right, like just look at the driver's license, whatever it says on there, that's what you type in, it serves the purpose of that system. By contrast, right? If you're talking about interpersonal interactions, which maybe those aren't quite legal, or maybe just the name that you put on the top of, of, of a caption when you're filing a case, that doesn't need to serve the same function. It doesn't, you're not using a lookup function there. And so maybe your goals are different. If, if I'm representing a client who, who wants to be known a certain way, I'm going to use the name that they actually go by. Um, and they want the court to hear at the top of a, a document if it's not if it doesn't need to serve some other function. What's the story behind how this myth sort of started? And like, when did we even just start asking for legal names in quotes? Yeah. So one of the things that's curious about the American legal system is it's basically just a copy paste of the English legal system as of the 1770s. <laughs> yeah. With some footnotes that we call a constitution. And this copy-paste inherits a lot of what's called the common law. The, the, the idea behind the common law, not to teach a whole course on it on this podcast because that's not possible, <laughs> is, is basically it comes out of the idea that there is some absolute entity out there called the law with capital T, capital L. And lawyers are engaged in doing a kind of, of, of natural science in uncovering it. And so judicial decisions over time are supposed to basically be experiments that figure out what the law is. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's the political theory behind it. Not really that great an idea, but as a system, it works because, uh, and, and we still use it because it's a good way to, to kind of have modesty in your individual judges 
and have consistency over time, which is a value in any legal system and predictability. Um, so there is this thing that kind of before the modern identity state, we had these things called common law names, just like common law marriage, common law, et cetera, et cetera. If you went by a name in your community, that was your name. It was almost magical, right? By uttering it, it became so. Traditionally, that has that has been viewed as working. And, and at the time, the United States copied and pasted the English le- legal system. That was the law. And so we then copied and pasted that. We inherited common law names in every state but, but Louisiana, because Louisiana isn't a common law state. Um, and that takes us to the 1900s, um, at which point, you know, slowly throughout the mid 20th century, late 20th century, and especially early 21st century, identity documents really exploded and the administrative state exploded. And, and, and we had all of these needs for recordation of various things. And along with it came this, I think, assumption that people had one correct name and that that should be the same name on every single document. But, but it's, it's just an assumption, right? Now, with the Real ID Act and all kinds of post-September 11th stuff, you, you have, in some ways, uh, uh, something putting that system into effect. But of course, none of that overwrites the law of the states. And, and most states have statutes that, that courts have said, rather than supplanting the common law system, merely provide an avenue to formalize your common law name change. And, you know, I I think everyone knows, basically, if if you get married, for example, you change your last name. You don't really have to do much with it. It just happens when you get married if you choose that it happens. And and that's the same kind of of common law name changes, say, starting to go by your middle name or starting to go by a different name in your community. It's just become a lot harder to change it on identity documents. Um, There's one case that we talk about in the paper where somebody sometime, I think, in, in the 70s, just went into the Department of Motor Vehicles or Bureau of Motor, Ve- Motor Vehicles, whichever the relevant state called it, and got an ID that said Santa Claus on it, said he was born on uh, December 25th, 1900. And the, the case is eventually once the state adopted real ID, he got arrested and criminally charged for presenting wow. false identification when you know the, the state had issued it. Um, and had been renewing it since the 70s. Um, Luckily, Santa Claus was uh, exonerated, and we did not decide to throw Santa Claus in jail. But I I think it really highlights there that there there is this difference between the way we've done things and the way we kind of, in the back of our heads, assume that the system exists and works. Does everyone have the right to design their identity Again, thinking of all these sort of bureaucracies and systems that we're living in. Yeah, and I'll, I'll have to, it depends you again. <laughs> um, I, I think as a normative matter, in the paper, we certainly argue everyone should. You know, with, with some exceptions and some footnotes and some, well, maybe everyone should. By and large, I also think that everyone does. There's a series of cases all by the same plaintiff in series that we cited in the paper where this one guy, he names himself a number of things. Initially, he tries to change his name to variable and the court says, we see what you're doing. You're not, your name is variable now, but that doesn't mean you're allowed to vary it. He then goes back (laughs) and changes his name to Fox Censorship. 
Um, <laughs> and they grant that. Um, and, 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 you know, I think they're like, four or five different recorded case, like reported cases wow. for this one person changing his name and saying, I have the common law right to change my name. I've told people in my community, this is my name now. And so, you know, as a descriptive matter, I think there is a lot of right to do it. Whether the world is actually reactive to that right and how much effort you have, right? I, I think in the American legal system, unfortunately, a lot of rights exist to the extent you're willing to pay for them to exist. And, and, and unfortunately, I, I think for name changes and this kind of name content, that is sometimes how the best way to express the answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. Paying with time and money. Yeah. So interesting. Remy, this is great. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and all the research you've done on this. Thank you. Listeners, to see more of Remy's work, visit femlaw.com. We'll post the link. And Remy, please stick around and we'll bring Corey Alonzo Yoder into the conversation after a quick break. The time has finally come. We're so excited to announce that we have brought back in-person exhibitions. So if you're in Massachusetts, check out our traveling We Design exhibition at Montserrat College of Art, now on view through November 18th. And that's in Beverly, Massachusetts. We Design features career stories of designers from a range of backgrounds and across industries. As one of our core programs, We Design emphasizes the need for more racial and gender diversity in the design and innovation fields. You can check it out in person at Montserrat, or you can visit the exhibition online. There's a link right on our homepage. So check out We Design People Practice Progress. And we're back. We're joined by our special guest, Corey Alonso Yoder. Corey is a faculty member at Howard Law School. She previously was the practitioner in residence with the Immigrant Justice Clinic at American University's Law School. Corey has worked on a variety of justice issues with a special emphasis on advocacy for LGBTQ and HIV positive immigrants. In her work to promote immigrants' rights, she has collaborated on transnational labor policy and worker outreach in central Mexico, as well as provided legal orientation and advice and counsel to inmates in U.S. immigration detention facilities. Corey also served as an assistant to the chair of the United Nations Committee Against Torture in Geneva. Professor Alonzo Yoder's commentary on immigrants' rights has been featured by ABC News, The Atlantic, Washington Monthly Magazine, and many more. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start, if you could share with us how your work intersects with that whole idea of identity. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in the introduction you gave me, you can start to pick out some of the ways in which this has come to my attention. Um, and I think in the work that I've done representing uh, transgender immigrants, particularly in their applications for asylum, I was really struck by the contrast with my own experience with name change. And one of the things that I found in uh, being able to do scholarship and write about these issues is to kind of dig deeper into things that as a practitioner, as a lawyer in the moment, you just don't really have the opportunity to spend time mulling over and considering. So the opportunity to write about this and to compare my own experience with name change to that of the people I was serving and just how different it was in terms of the level of facility or the hurdles or the lack of hurdles in my case versus all of the structural challenges that the people I was representing had to had to overcome. That led, I imagine, to this article that you wrote, Making a Name for Themselves. Can you share a bit about that article and the, and the work you did there? Sure. 
to the extent we're talking about identity, I think it's probably helpful to just get a little bit more out about my own. And so one thing that I, I found, um, so I'm Latina. I was born in Mexico. I was born with a name that I don't use, um, but it was not necessarily a desire to move away from that name so much as as a young kid being called by a certain name by family. I mean, I think there's a history and kind of a culture of nicknaming in Latin American cultures and then kind of having a dual identity that was responsive not only to the fact that I had two names or actually many more names. Uh, <laughs> my, my Corey is an abbreviation of Ana Corina, which was my given name, but that those identities also kind of interacted with my own kind of feeling of being a binational, dual national person. And that the names that I had were very much associated with the experiences that I had. Um, and one thing that I found was, you know, as a white Latina, I never had challenges. Really, it was, you know, the question of does the professor know who I am? by what name I preferred to go by, but never a challenge of you're not who you say you are, that's not your legal name, or the ability to even, you know, just have one name for certain purposes versus a, a name for other purposes. I, I, I moved through society in a way that I found very easy. And later when I when I married and changed my name as a consequence of marriage, I did all of that process for myself and found it, again, very easy. So to be representing individuals who were doing similar processes and just struggling mightily to even have a name change petition be accepted as an initial matter in a court of law was really, I think, striking. So um, working with uh, my clients and eventually taking some of my concerns about the ways in which the law was not fully serving them to the courts here locally in the Washington, D.C. area where I primarily practice, I was really struck by all of these new requirements that the judges were kind of placing on top of the, the law, <laughs> on top of what the statute said. And of course, there's a, a law underlying that statute. Um, and so I, I wanted to understand and kind of make the case to them that this was not consistent to the law and it was actually harming people. And so in my my piece in the article, I break down that history more, um, in part, I think, to kind of appeal to even a judge or somebody whose experience maybe is very different to my own or to those of my my clients, those I serve, to explain why this is so important and why it's so fundamental and really original to a view in a way that I think at times certain people, commentators on the law, are more accepting of or more likely to be persuaded by that, you know, this is a very original view of the common law of name change, that people should be able to be known by the name that they say is theirs and that they identify with, and that that simple standard has been so uh, corrupted by all of these additional legal processes. Yeah. Can you share some of the hurdles that your clients specifically are trying to overcome that you're helping them overcome? The most mundane things, you know, that any um, kind of legal services or civil legal uh, services attorney will navigate with clients, which is filing fees, getting the clerk to simply accept the forms, that the signatures are in the right place. But, you know, some of those things, they, they seem trivial, but they're really a big deal in terms of somebody takes time off of work and, you know, they are potentially missing income, as well as needing to pay for these kinds of processes. So all of that kind of, um, you know, miscellaneous things that are always at issue when you're talking about questions in poverty law. But particular to the experience of some of the individuals that I was, that I was serving are these requirements over and above the uh, existing requirements for uh, name change petitioners based on their immigration status. So for example, like of all of the challenges that my clients experience, one of the most 
pervasive and one of the most stifling to their desire to change their name was that they had to notify Immigration and Customs Enforcement in order to proceed in the District of Columbia uh, with a name change as a non-citizen. And so you can imagine uh, how troubling that would be to somebody, even people who are not, who are, who are documented, who are in lawful status. So one of the things I've encountered in my own practice, right, is you have these legal requirements that are grafted on that are actually legally grafted on. And then you kind of have judges that just do things, right? So there, there's a judge in New York, um, at least until the, the, the most recent change in our name change law, that he would just say, I require publication. There's a statute that says that, that you know, there, there are reasons you exempt cases from publication, meaning you have to publish the name change in order for it to be effective. But he literally never granted it and said that he didn't. One of the things that I assume drove us both to write on similar issues it is these kinds of things that don't match what at least appellate courts say the law is. And I think we both came to a similar answer, which is scholarship. So I'd be very interested to hear you say how you landed at, at, at scholarship being the right answer, because it's a weird place for me as a litigator to land. And I'm not sure why I landed there. Well, I think one of the things for me has been just almost like a know your rights type aspect of this work. Um, and so, you know, for me, the scholarship is an is an approach in part because I'm teaching and I've taken a lot of my experiences. You know, I've worked as a clinical educator, so continued to be in practice, um, but trying to create some bridge between what's happening on the ground to how people who develop the law and think about the law and and have input on how the law would reform or change or move um, can try to understand how things are actually playing out in practice. Um, so the idea of using scholarship to have the conversation, I think is also because while I want the general public to have a sense of what their rights are, I appreciate that not everybody's picking up law reviews to do that. The ones who are doing so are, no. are potentially, <laughs> I know, I said the quiet part out loud. So. <laughs> So, I mean, obviously, um, I think when you can make a claim that can then be used by other advocates, and, and at times that's where legal scholarship can be really vital, is trying to push the bounds of the law and perhaps in a way that can be supportive to cases that are currently being litigated, but also the cases that are yet to come um, is really helpful. I think it also, for me, quite immediately, what I was trying to do is have something to say to a, a room full of judges that I sat down with several years ago and said, hey, this ICE notification requirement has all kinds of problems, not least of them, of course, people's safety and people's ability to legally change their name, but also like, look at this historical record. These are all of the ways in which all kinds of individuals throughout our history in a way that I think we would agree is very admirable have changed their names. And this is kind of continuing in a line of that movement for social justice. So trying to, I think, capture various audiences and the ability to, you know, have conversations like this, hopefully will continue to proliferate the conversation and, and raise greater awareness around it. Because ideally, what I'd love to see happen is just that people know that, you know, that this idea of a legal, of a legal name, maybe that's a fallacy. And maybe you could just be able to go to the DMV and say, hey, here are all the ways in which I'm currently using a different name. Please change my driver's license. I have an affidavit from a friend who knew me pre-name change and who knows me now, and I'm the exact same person. I don't need to go to a judge to make this effective and to be recognized by this name because that's 
all the common law requires. I think it's really interesting that we come back to the common law because I think we we both have have spoken of this as as if it's something new, but turning to the common law is really almost the opposite of that, right? There's a certain unearthing that we're doing uh, of this older pre-real ID, pre-September 11th, pre-administrative state sort of thinking, and maybe that thinking largely only applied to white people and white men, but it's not entirely something new, is it? No, and I think that that's where I think it can be very persuasive to have the conversation and to talk about it in those terms is that, you know, again, we are talking a purely textualist reading of what the common law says in a way that I think um, appeals to all kinds of different political viewpoints and sectors of society, but also think really appeals to even a more libertarian view that people should be free of these kinds of interventions by the government to express themselves when it comes to individual rights and individual liberties. And I think that the name change really, name change right really fits into that. And historically, you know, the fact that we live in a current a moment where we have all kinds of documentation requirements, uh, I think can be at times perhaps a little bit of a subterfuge that this can't be accomplished or done in some way. But again, my name change, the name change of lots of individuals who have not historically been always disadvantaged in the law, such as women who are changing their names, cisgender women changing their names pursuant to a heterosexual marriage. That happens all the time. That happens several times every single day. Um, and there's no judge intervention that's required, just you know, some minimal documentation of that, of that change. So even you know, if we can think about the common law standard as coming up within a pr- very particular context to protect the rights of a certain segment of society that the law sought to protect, I think there's all kinds of historical examples that are kind of uh, unique as being the counterexample of individuals throughout history who who actually effectively use the name change right, um, who are not cisgender white males um, and had their name change be be recognized. Can you share for folks listening who have never gone through the process, what is that process of changing your name? I think of every you know process or policy as like a system design. So I also would love to know like why that's the process. Well, if we're applying the common law, essentially the process is that I decide on my name and I share it to you and I share it openly and often enough that it becomes plain that, you know, this is my intended intended name. Unless you're in prison in some jurisdictions. <laughs> Unless you're in prison. And this is where you see the, co- so the common law now in its application through statute has taken on all kinds of additional um, approaches in the law that are pretty inconsistent to the original idea that people should be able to sort of openly change their name through this rather simplistic process of this is my name and now I'm I'm advertising it to you and you're accepting it as my name and now that's a legally effective change. You now see these statutes taking on other aspects of efforts to criminalize or to have a punitive effect to prevent and discourage immigration or unauthorized immigration to punish in a way on top of the criminal sanctions individuals who are incarcerated or who have criminal records. So yeah, the name change and the statutes that have applied this kind of general, here's how I change my name, I tell you what it is, and you accept it as my name, those have all kind of been subverted in a very troubling way in the statute. But so today, how one would change their name, there's a difference between whether it's going to be the common law change of the kind I just described that, again, is legally effective in the majority of the states in the United States 
But the way in which, for example, I changed my name when I uh, married was I got a marriage certificate for, as a result of being married and I showed it to the DMV and I so showed it to Social Security and I showed it you know, to Passport Agency, Department of State, and I filled out an application and I said, this is my name. And the thing is, like, I didn't even change my name in a way that is, you know, quote unquote, recognized in that I didn't take my husband's last name as my own. I I grafted it on to my name and there yet that was, you know, nobody questioned that I can only change my name in a certain way. So that's simply an application of how common law name change would apply and I think most often does apply in the modern context. How a name change happens in the alternative is to file a petition to the to a court and again depending on the requirements of that of that court, pay a fee, have to publish that you're changing your name. Uh, have to wait for a hearing, perhaps depending on the state, no hearing is necessary, and then have a judge look at the reason why you want to change your name and decide if it's okay with them. <laughs> I mean, at, at base, th that they have this discretion to say, okay, okie dokie, we're going to change it or not, which is very problematic in the way some of the, ca the cases have shown that that kind of authorization has been denied um, for all kinds of reasons that are just um, rather outlandish and not found in the law. Can you talk about how naming oneself can become like an act of liberation for certain people? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that culturally, at least in our culture, naming has often happened is you know, sort of a non-consensual at the time of birth acquiring of a name. And one thing about name change law, especially as it has been used in the United States that I think is is very liberating is that one has the ability, and I will, I'll say as an adult, there are all kinds of particular standards that apply to children that are kind of related to, you know, child welfare and other issues. But as an adult, um, an inv individual who's found to have a legal capacity to make such decisions for themselves can again, use the common law of name change to say, this is my name and that's how I'd, I want to be known and that's how I should be addressed. And that has a very, I think, important component, particularly when you think about the denial of that kind of autonomy. And especially when you think about the ways in which the forced conference of a name has at times been very oppressive. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in, in the article is the particular way in which cultural um, mentality associated with colonialism and conquest has created this problem of forced naming um, in a way that disregards the autonomy and agency and very existence of individuals by this kind of forced state dubbing of a name. So the experience I think that is most salient and perhaps most familiar to, to people who are listening is the concept of the, it's the quote unquote slave name or the names of enslavement um, that were forced upon people, African-Americans at the time of, of slavery. Of course, that's an oversimplification because in truth, people who were enslaved as we know and abhor were treated as property. So they did not have proper names. If you look at the ways in which, or at least in the law, in the way that the law uh, interacted with individual identities of, of, of enslaved people. So if you look at the ways in which um, government records categorize by name individuals who were enslaved, it's not until very late into our census records that they're even identified as people by name, much less uh, what we would consider, you know, a full, full proper name, at least in U.S. society. So 
part of the project of emancipation and of achieving full citizenship rights post-Civil War was this large project of having registration with, with the government by a name that formerly enslaved people could choose for themselves. Um, so I think that that's a particularly um, salient anecdote of how naming is connected to concepts in emancipation and liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. What about the digital aspect of all of this, of like digital identity and I'm online, I can be whoever I want. Does that add complexity or does it add richness? Is it both? It certainly depends. I, I think one of the the issues, and certainly this exists when you're filling out forms on paper, but it's it's even more so when you're filling out anything online, right? If a designer does not anticipate the different ways a name can be shaped, whether it's you know a, a name must have a minimum of three characters. Some people have names that have one character, or or you know um, I, I'm sure Corey has encountered her last name being too many characters once or twice. A lot of forms, you have to swear things are true when you're filling them out, especially when they're government forms. And sometimes there's not a true way to fill out a form. And, and that's a huge problem, right? Because that's a crime. As Corey was saying earlier, right? A lot of things around names are criminalized in a way that falls on a certain subset of populations. So if, if we're talking about the digital era and, and kind of the way we put names online, um, there are a couple things worth mentioning. One, right, like it's difficult to interact with the system. But two, as you identified, Sam, I think there's a, a possibility that people end up with far more legal names than they might have before. And one thing that's always interesting to look at is, is indictments of hackers, because they'll be like a page long with all of their aliases. I actually just rewatched Hackers with a partner. Um, so, so, so I've got, I've got Zero Cool and, and Crash Override and, and Acid Burn in my head. But like those would have been less like, right? If you indicted him, it, it, it would have been AKA Zero Cool, AKA Crash Override. And it would have been important to the government to have identified all of those. And, and so I think in a sense, even though they're just listed as AKAs, those are that hacker's legal name. I love the example in my not cool own personal example, like filling out a mortgage application and getting, again, because it's not even just names that I have held myself out as, but any iteration of, again, throughout my life, even prior to marriage, I had a, a hyphenated last name. So I've, you know, between some people choosing just the first part of the hyphenated last name or the second part, my mortgage application was like a full paragraph of all of the aliases that they had found in doing a credit check on me. And I was like, wow, these are even things that, you know, they would, as Remy said, be considered my legal names, even if they're names that I hadn't, you know, fully endorsed and held myself out as constantly. But I think one thing that is really fascinating and I think underscores the importance of an individual's right to choose their name and to be recognized and known by that name is we're kind of moving into a, a place where naming is not necessary to, at least to the in, on the part of the state to know how to locate people. That's probably terrifying, but I think it's the reality. Like, I mean, the when I think about my clients, for example, and, and part of the challenge that, you know, I encounter when, I, especially when I'm talking about immigrants, this concept of being documented or undocumented and, you know, what documents count, increasingly my clients are being forced to provide biometrics, right? Like iris scans and fingerprints and photos and all kinds of things that 
will not change over their their lifetime. Um, but so again, this idea of how all of these technologies impact um, and how they perhaps um, are resonant with the concept of a person's ability to design their own identity and to have agency in that, I think it just further underscores how important it is that people have that right and have that individual liberty, maybe especially in an era where the state has so much power and so much ability to restrict our individual liberties due to technology. Your name is one aspect of the way in which you design your identity and the fact that we have a legal system that should allow a more flexible approach to that, I think is really important and really interesting about U.S. law as an example. Yeah. Oh, no, that's great. Thank you both. And Corey, thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience and expertise. It's been great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you, Remy. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Corey. Listeners, to see more of Corey's work, you'll have a chance to read her paper, Making a Name for Themselves in Rutgers University Law Review paper next year. And you can see that at RutgersLawReview.com. Now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has made an impact on us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. I'm going to share a whole line of toys that I just love and that my kids have a bunch of them. And thankfully, you know, you have kids and then people buy you toys and you're like, we don't need any more toys. But this company called Green Toys is so amazing. They are all made in the United States. They're made out of uh, recycled milk jugs. And that's a great story and really cool. I just want to talk about like just the design of them overall. They take like any, like a boat or like a big like ditch digger, even like a, I don't know, they have like a ferry. <laughs> There's all like vehicles. My son's really into vehicles, so that's why. But they're like so like iconic. They like distill down whatever this thing might be. M might be a tea set. Um, might be a, I don't know, you name it, just like a stacking toy. And they distill this toy down to like its basic elements, but they add a bit of fun and they feel like so like chunky and you just want to like hold them. Um, you know, I think sometimes like the very realistic toys leave nothing for the imagination. And these have like just enough, like the helicopter, like yes, the blades spin, but like other than that, it's pretty like blobby, you know, toy. Uh, anyway, I love them. We have a bunch of them. Love that they're recycled. I love the texture of them too, I'll say. They all have this like, almost actually, I'm just realizing it, it's very similar to the milk like jug texture. <laughs> so it's all clicking for me in this moment. And just the colors are so amazing. So check out greentoys.com and they've just got hundreds of really cool, cool things. Okay, it's mine. Remy, you're up. So I spent a little bit of time thinking about what I was going to do, and, and I decided, you know, I'm going to be a legal nerd, and and, and I'm going to say that I am going to talk about the design of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 4D. First, I'm, I'm going to probably have to talk a little bit about why, you know, what problem it's solving, and then I'll, I'll explain how it solves it. So the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure are how civil cases move through the federal court system. To start a lawsuit, you need to summon somebody to court. And to do that, you actually have to hand them a, a, set, a stack of papers, right? If, if you don't do that, it's not fair. But that's a, a requirement that dates back to, you know, forever ago. And in designing a set of rules for how you can serve people with papers, it wouldn't make much sense if the rules had to constantly be changing 
is, and, and it would be hard to change them among a community of people that still thinks a fax machine is a pretty nifty widget. What, what the designers of the federal rules have done is they've included the, this uh, rule on waiver. Now, I, let me back up to before that because there's one other part of the problem. It turns out that if somebody is trying to avoid getting served with papers, they can make it very annoying, very time-consuming, and very expensive to start a lawsuit with kind of no benefit. And that's something that the system you know, doesn't like, especially because we, we are so formalistic about you need to actually serve them, right? It's not fair if they don't actually get it. And, and our legal system is not actually very good in general at dealing with bad faith. Um, but Rule 4D, I think, is actually one of the very few places our legal system has figured out how to deal with bad faith. And so the way it works is any you, if you send something asking that somebody waive the requirement to serve them, in any method reasonably calculated to give them that notice and they fail to waive service, then immediately, without regard to the result of the case, they at the start of the case, they have to pay you back for all of your costs in serving them and all of your costs in making a motion to get the costs of serving them. And what this ultimately does is it means that I've encountered judges that have never heard of Rule 4D because it doesn't come up because everyone waves service. It's this whole thing. And if you go to law school, you'll, you'll, you'll hear all these cases that are, you know, absurd. There's a case about, um, you know, somebody trying to serve uh, the guitarist Jeff Beck with a lawsuit and like he's got a security behind him and they throw the papers at him. And it was about whether he actually was aware that the papers that were thrown at him were a law, right? And, and, and there's all there's all of these cases you'll read, but this this rule, except in these extraordinary circumstances, makes it so that this just never gets litigated because you send the requirement and it's it's going to be more costly than, than than the benefit every single time to do it. And I think most importantly, you get paid back right away. It's not something that you have to defer, which is another big problem with a lot of other entitlements in the legal system. And the reason a lot of kind of these sort of nudges um, don't end up working to affect actual behavior. I love it. It's a good design right there. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, could be a toy, could be a legal precedent, tweet or share it with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano, and I will share it here on the show. Remy, thank you so much for being here. This was so fun, such an interesting topic, and your expertise is really appreciated. Well, it's, it's, been, it's been great to be here. This, this has been an absolute delight. That's our show. Again, I want to thank Remy Green and Corey Alonso Yoder for joining us, and thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources and articles we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. You can also search us out on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Plus, we have an awesome weekly email newsletter. that can go right to your inbox. It's got all the news from Design Museum, so you can sign up for that on our website as well. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design Is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. While you're at it, hey, leave a quick review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find our show. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates and Tanya Chavla. Tanya was our summer intern, and this was her pitch. This was her idea for an episode, and it was so great, Tanya. So thank you so much for being part of Design Is Everywhere. 
Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being with us and we'll talk again next week.